Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Hurricane Lee intensifies to Category 2. Meteorologists are watching closely to see if the storm will hit the U.S. East Coast in the coming days. And a different kind of storm in Washington today. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro is facing prison time after a jury convicted him for contempt of Congress. Trump may try to move his Georgia elections case to federal court. His attorneys notified the judge today. Disputes over domestic spending and aid to Ukraine are putting the House and Senate on a collision course. That's amid a looming government shutdown. How can voters ensure politicians are mentally capable? A doctor says there's a quick 10-minute test, but he doesn't think that's a good solution. Find out why. President Biden is on his way to the G20 summit in India. What's on his agenda as threats from China are in the spotlight. We'll have the latest on the ground in New Delhi. And Americans are known for passionately debating politics. But now it appears AI might be joining in those debates. And it's all a Chinese influence operation. Hurricane Lee is quickly intensifying in the Atlantic Ocean. It's now a Category 2 hurricane, and it's possible the storm could hit the U.S. East Coast. The National Hurricane Center says Hurricane Lee now has sustained winds of 105 miles per hour. Forecasters say Lee could be a Category 3 hurricane by early Friday and possibly a Category 4 later that same day. It could reach near Category 5 as it approaches the Eastern Caribbean. The extremely dangerous core of Hurricane Lee is expected to remain north of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands over the weekend, bringing high waves and storm surge at a minimum. It's still too early to tell where the storm will travel from there and whether it will hit the U.S. Any possible impacts to the U.S. mainland won't occur until next week. That 70s show actor Danny Masterson has been sentenced to 30 years to life in prison after being convicted of rape. The 47-year-old was found guilty on two counts of forcible rape in Maine. The judge heard statements from both victims before issuing Masterson's sentence, which was the maximum allowed by law. Masterson's defense team says he plans to appeal over errors in the trial. Challenges to disqualify Trump are on the rise. On Wednesday, six Colorado voters sued to block him from getting on the ballot. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards discusses the allegations with a constitutional lawyer. In the midst of a growing interest in disqualifying former President Trump, a Washington-based watchdog group filed a lawsuit on Wednesday to block Trump from the 2024 Republican primary ballot in Colorado. The group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics, or CRU, represents six registered Colorado voters, four of them Republican. The lawsuit filed in Colorado District Court relies on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It prevents former office holders from seeking office again if they've engaged in insurrection or if they helped others to do so. The lawsuit argues that Trump incited, exacerbated, and otherwise engaged in a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol by a mob who believed they were following his orders and refused to protect the Capitol or call off the mob for nearly three hours as the attack unfolded. Constitutional lawyer James Bopp, who represented Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene in a similar lawsuit, calls January 6 despicable 
but says... It did not arise to the level of an insurrection. He defined insurrection. The most uh, telling uh, document is the uh, uh, official opinion of the U.S. Uh, Attorney General in 1867, where he interpreted these very words. And, and the words are engage in an insurrection or rebellion. Engage uh, requires conduct. And the conduct that it requires, according to the U.S. Attorney General, is a direct overt act of insurrection. So words, he specifically said, do not count. You can't, you know, that's really incitement, which is another type of activity that is not uh, provided for in the Section 3. It's engaged. Okay, now there is a growing trend of states and also individuals looking into filing claims in court uh, that would enforce this Section 3. Now, would the court have to decide whether or not uh, former President Trump was part of this or part of an insurrection or actually participated in it? And, and I, I think, as you said earlier, it's not participation, but how would the court view this? Well, they would, of course, uh, uh, if there is a state procedure that lawfully would allow governmental officials to uh, decide that uh, he would not be on the ballot if such procedures exist, assuming for the sake of argument that the state could decide this, uh, then yes, of course, they would have to de properly define what engage means, properly define what insurrection means, and then uh, determine whether or not the person involved uh, engaged in, in an insurrection. The Constitution doesn't detail how to enforce the ban, nor who should carry it out. According to Bob, the Arizona Supreme Court says it's up to Congress to decide, not a state official. So what would you have to say to the state officials who are currently reviewing this matter and considering filing a similar claim? What is at stake here is our democracy and the right of voters to vote for candidates that uh, otherwise qualify to be on the ballot. And uh, this is a so fundamentally anti-democratic, so fundamentally destructive to our whole electoral system. All right, James Bopp, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Trump may try to move his Georgia case to federal court to possibly get the charges dropped. His attorneys notified the judge overseeing the case today. Five other co-defendants are also trying to move their cases to federal court. The move could benefit Trump in several ways. It would give him more opportunities to get the charges dropped if he can convince a judge his actions were tied to his formal duties as president. Also, the federal jury would be drawn from more a 10 region near Atlanta, and that's likely to provide an even more spread of Democrats and Republicans. In the state court, the jury would be drawn from Fulton County, which Biden won by a 47-point margin. A federal case also would not be televised. Trump pleaded not guilty last week, so he has until the end of September to decide whether or not to try to move the case. Former advisor to Trump, Peter Navarro, convicted today for refusing to comply with a congressional subpoena. Here are the details. Ex-advisor to President Trump, Peter Navarro, was found guilty on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress on Thursday. He did not appear to react when the verdict was read. 
Navarro is the second top advisor to Trump to be found guilty of this. Last summer, Steve Bannon, a former strategist for Trump, was found guilty of the same charges. In Navarro's case, one count is for failing to give the House Select Committee documents that they requested during their investigation of the January 6th Capitol breach. The other is for not appearing at a deposition to provide testimony. Here's Navarro after the verdict. What's so remarkable about this case is that even as the Department of Justice was bringing this case, they had a policy for more than 50 years that says people like me, senior White House advisors, alter egos of the president, cannot be compelled, cannot be compelled to testify before Congress. Absolute. Yet they brought the case. Each count carries a sentence of as much as a year in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. A hearing to determine his sentence is scheduled for January 12, 2024. Navarro said he will appeal. A brewing battle over domestic spending and aid to Ukraine. And this time, there's not just a partisan dispute, but also an intra-party disagreement within the GOP. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill on the key differences. One main dispute here is whether to tie together $16 billion for disaster relief to $24 billion in Ukraine aid. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell supports the White House's Ukraine aid request, but many Republicans in the House do not support this. And we're not just seeing pushback from House Republicans, but there are also some Senate Republicans who are breaking with their own party leader on this issue. Maintaining our support for Ukraine is extremely important. I've said for a long time until we secure our own borders that I would not vote for any more funding for Ukraine. The word on the street is that uh, Ukraine is corrupt and we're not following the money that we're giving them as well. I want to prioritize um, disaster aid to um, areas in the United States. Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, both from Florida, did introduce a bill to separate this disaster relief aid from that controversial Ukraine aid. Remember, their state right now is recovering from a hurricane. Another issue at the forefront here is the level of spending for the government. The Senate plans to vote on their appropriations bills next week at spending levels much higher than some House Republicans are willing to accept, and they're even willing to risk a government shutdown to bargain for less costs. Others have joined Congressman Chip Roy, pledging to oppose any funding for the DHS specifically without meaningful change to border policy. One Republican in the Senate tells me that he supports the House's hardline efforts in holding tight on this issue. And look, we're spending 15 or 20 percent more than what we're taking in as revenue. We're spending this much on interest, then we don't have enough money left over for things like uh, like nutrition bills, uh, the SNAP programs. Speaker McCarthy has suggested passing a short-term funding bill just to make room for them to get through these disputes as we approach the September 30th deadline. But then on all this mix, there's also the much-anticipated vote on the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, which some House Republicans are now saying that they're not going to pass any any funding for the government without this vote assured on impeachment inquiry. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. What's the solution to concerns about politicians' mental capacity? Would a standardized test or age limits be good ideas? To dive into the implications, we spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas, a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Happy to be here. 
Right now, after McConnell's second freeze-up, there's a lot of discussion around age, but it's not just the Republican side. There's also, say, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's 90, and President Biden, who's also 80. So there's this discussion around term limits or age limits. And as a doctor, what's your take on all of this? Well, I mean, it's really not about age. Uh, you know, age is not the same as, normal aging is not the same as cognitive impairment. There's a spectrum of no, from normal aging to an illness, and that illness is mild cognitive impairment or then frank dementia. And I think some of the things we're seeing here by some of our leaders are sort of obvious signs of cognitive impairment. So cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, is only about 15% of people who are 75 and older. So that's not normal aging. That's an illness. So my, my point here is that it's not about the age per se. It's about the function of someone and if that interferes with their important duties. I mean, the, the, the actual answer, though, is I'm not sure how many careers require a cognitive test I'm not so sure that it's appropriate to have a cognitive test. You would think that voters should be able to make a decision in a democracy, and uh, it does bring up a, a rational reason to have term limits. And, Doctor, on that note, presidential hopeful Nikki Haley was actually calling for mental competency tests for politicians over 75. What would that actually look like? Well, I mean, there's two there's two questions in there. One is, is there such a competency test? And there are several. One is called a mini mental status examination. It's a 10-minute quick test. But the real the real issue is, why would that be required? Uh, you know, I, I'm not so sure that there's something unique about the importance of a congressman. We have elections. Uh, voters uh, are supposed to have a brain when they vote for someone, uh, you know, uh, but if voters want to elect someone like, uh, say, Senator Fetterman or Senator Feinstein or President Biden or anybody else, I would think that's their choice. So I'm not so sure, uh, you know, I think there are very, very simple ways to assess if someone is cognitively impaired. For instance, you can ask them a question, do masks work for viral respiratory infections? That's a pretty simple uh, cognitive test there. And on your point about Senator Fetterman, he is just 54 years old, but he did come under the spotlight when he checked himself in for depression. So some were concerned if he was able to do his abilities there. So how much of the discussion here is around what you are pointing out, actually the cognitive capabilities and not just age? Well, I think it's all about cognitive capability, but I think that the answer really is to insist on information. I, I don't see how uh, the voters should not be able to see the medical evaluation of people who are in very important positions, at least, I would think, president of the United States. I think that's reasonable, but I'm not sure that there is a specific test that should be administered other than uh, you know what you see, personal appearances. I, I don't think it's that much of a mystery to even laymen, non-medical people, when they watch TV, to see the interviews or debate stage performances. I think we need information, but we're a free society. You know, if if voters want to elect people 
uh, that it cannot function. I, I guess that's the country that we live in, really. Sounds like a lot of this is on the voters as well. Well, Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Senator J.D. Vance introduced a new bill today that would ban federal mask mandates in public schools and public transit through the end of 2024. This comes as a number of hospitals and colleges are already reimposing COVID-19 mask mandates. We cannot repeat the anxiety, the stress, and the non-stop panic of the last couple of years. That's what this legislation is about. End the mandates, end the panic, and let's get back to some common sense. In an op-ed published on Fox News, Vance wrote, Americans should be free to live their lives, to travel, to work, and go to school without subjection to needless force. The senator added, if Senate Democrats block my legislation, they must be planning to reinstate mask mandates once again. Vance requested unanimous consent to the bill on the Senate floor, but Democrats rejected the proposal. Now the bill has to work through Senate committees before it's back on the Senate floor for another vote. Public health experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, have been calling for mask mandates again in recent days. Despite COVID concerns, President Biden is now on the way to India for the upcoming G20 summit. His main focus there will be to rally countries to bolster the World Bank. Entity's Iris Tao is on the ground in New Delhi. So President Biden is going to get here on Friday night, which is your Friday morning. And one thing that we're clear on right now is that Biden did proceed with his plan to come here despite the first lady testing positive for COVID-19 earlier this week. So the White House says that President Biden has been testing negative for COVID for the past few days and that he has no symptoms so far. The president's going to be masking in the next, in this 10-day period. He's going to be masking. He's going to be making sure that uh, he is getting tested regularly uh, and so we're going to uh, continue to certainly to monitor uh, for any symptoms he has. So we will most likely see Biden wearing a mask when meeting with leaders here at the summit and actually we might see that even sooner as once he lands he's going to hold a bilateral meeting with Indian Prime Minister Modi where he's going to talk about stepping up investments in India especially in the technology sector and at the G20 summit Biden expected to really push for bolstering the World Bank as well as the international National Monetary Fund. And the purpose of which is to really form a contrast with China's lending practices, which often lead to debt traps for developing countries, because these organizations, once they have more funds, will be able to support these countries with more transparent and high-quality investments. Here's what the White House said. Just last month, President Biden asked Congress for additional funds that would have the impact of increasing World Bank financing by more than $25 billion. And we're working to make sure that other partners follow our lead. But it is worth noting that the Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping will not appear at this year's G20 summit. So a big thing to watch for during the summit will be whether or not or really to what extent these leaders, including President Biden, will bring up the issue of countering China. And after the G20 summit, President Biden's traveling to Vietnam to really boost ties with that country to an unprecedented level. And that comes as Vietnam is increasingly at odds with China over disputes in the South China Sea. So that will be another arena where we might see more moves on countering Beijing. And Tiff. 
Artificial intelligence is everywhere from our smartphones to our cars, but could it also be influencing how we vote? A shocking report from Microsoft reveals that might be the case. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. As Americans weigh their choices for the 2024 presidential election, artificial intelligence is quietly shaping public opinion in ways we might not even realize. Microsoft says their researchers have uncovered what they believe to be a network of fake Chinese Communist Party controlled social media accounts. And those accounts are being used to influence U.S. voters. And their posts don't look like they're from China. A Microsoft spokesperson said the accounts attempt to appear to be Americans, listing their public locations within the United States, posting American political slogans, and sharing hashtags related to political issues. For example, this Black Lives Matter graphic was first uploaded by a CCP-affiliated automated account and was then uploaded by an account impersonating a U.S. conservative voter seven hours later. And this Statue of Liberty graphic labeling her as the goddess of violence has six fingers on her hand, a common indicator of a photo made by AI. Now you can have one bad actor who can manipulate tens of thousands of accounts to shed light on this issue, I spoke with Rex Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySmart Privacy, and he explained that AI can do more than just create political divisive graphics. The beginning of the movie starts off with a young-looking Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones, um, and his likeness and his um, uh, uh, voice print were 100% dead on. You couldn't tell whether they shot it 30 years ago or shot it uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, so they can do this with anybody, especially uh, with political figures, because they're in the news, their likeness is out there, um, and their voice prints have been out there for years. So what should people do to make sure they won't be swayed by these AI influence operations? First of all, you shouldn't be getting your news from any social media platform, uh, because these social media companies have a bias. They have a political bias. We know that for a fact go back to the end user. They have to take responsibility and uh, understand where they're getting their news. They should get it directly from the news sources, whether that's uh, CNN or Fox or who I get my news from, the Epic Times. And he explained that we'll see more and more of these AI influence operations come up as the 2024 election approaches. Jason Perry, NTD News. Up next, an illegal immigrant who brutally killed his girlfriend is still on the loose in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Washington, D.C. officials are looking for a murder suspect who escaped from a hospital. And a problem that will destroy New York City. That's what Mayor Eric Adams said about the continuing influx of illegal immigrants, adding that he sees no end to the crisis. That's coming up. Welcome back. Turning now to crime in D.C., a manhunt is underway after a homicide suspect cut himself loose from a hospital while in custody. The Metropolitan Police Department is warning locals to proceed with caution if spotted. NTD's Sam Wong has the details. We're here outside the George Washington University Hospital where a murder suspect escaped police custody last night. Right now, the shelter-in-place order is very much over, but the threat is still looming in the minds of many residents. That includes some college students living around the area. The suspect is identified as 30-year-old Christopher Patrick Haynes. 
D.C. police describe him as a six-foot-tall black man with shoulder-length dreadlocks and a tattoo on his neck. He was first arrested in Manassas, Virginia, in connection to a fatal shooting in northwest D.C. Later, he was checked into a hospital after complaining about an ankle injury. According to the city's police chief, Hanks fled from the hospital because one of his hands wasn't tied up to the gurney as an officer changed his handcuffs. The question is, how could he just walk out being handcuffed? And second of all, why wasn't nobody watching him if he was a murder suspect? Authorities soon ordered students and staff at the university to shelter in place until nearby area was cleared late Wednesday night. We got the first alert at around 3.35 p.m. and then I didn't leave the classroom that I was in or my teacher's office until 6 p.m. Um, but the official all clear that we were not in shelter in place anymore didn't happen. Um, didn't happen until 7.30 p.m. I, I was in class, so my professor like immediately kept us like locked down in the room and shelter in place happened quickly. Hanks was last spotted wearing a black t-shirt and gray shorts with handcuffs hanging off his right wrist. He was previously put under multiple assault charges but was set free each time. D.C. police are not offering a $25,000 reward for any information leading to his arrest. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Another manhunt in Pennsylvania enters the eighth day today. Locals spotted the escaped murderer at least six times since he escaped, but the extremely dangerous inmate is still on the loose. Convicted killer Danilo Calvacante is still on the run. That's after escaping from a Pennsylvania prison eight days ago. We're just being extra cautious in terms of where we're going to go. Locals in Chester County say they're worried with the convicted killer on the loose in their area. I just put a couple of new, bolt, new bolts on two doors. I keep the car locked. By taking these precautions, residents are following instructions from law enforcement. He's a very dangerous individual and he remains so. Chester County Police on Thursday giving an update on the search for the convict. We have had tactical teams from all over the country uh, come in and continue to come in. We have some additional resources that are arriving today. Cavalcante received a life sentence last month for stabbing his ex-girlfriend 38 times in front of her children in 2021. However, the Brazilian native soon after escaped prison by scaling the wall, as you can see in this video. He then continued his escape on the roof and has been on the run since. The 34-year-old fugitive is also wanted in his home country, Brazil. That's due to a separate murder which took place in 2017. The criminal escaped Brazil and came to the U.S. illegally. He reportedly went to Puerto Rico where he got a fake ID, then entered the U.S. Fox News previously reported that the immigration officials don't know when he entered, but they said after his arrest in the United States, ICE became aware of his unlawful presence and an ICE detainer was lodged against him. An immigration detainer is when ICE asks law enforcement to hand over the individual in question once he's released from custody. Residents reportedly spotted Calvacante at least eight times since he escaped. The last time was on Thursday morning. Law enforcement is currently searching an area with a radius of nine square miles or over 4,000 football fields. A reward of $20,000 has been set for information leading to Calvacante's arrest. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. An issue that will destroy New York City. This was Mayor Eric Adams' recent description of the influx of illegal immigrants. He said he sees no end to the crisis and that, quote, the city we knew were about to lose. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. This issue will destroy New York City. 
Addressing the issue of illegal immigration, New York City Mayor Eric Adams says the influx from Texas is hurting the city. It's putting a strain on government resources, and he's not getting any federal support. A madman down in Texas decided he wanted to bust people up to New York City. 110,000 migrants. We have to feed, clothe, house, educate the children, Watch their laundry sheets. Adams says he sees no end to the problem. All New Yorkers will be impacted and the city will be lost. Put all the migrants on Rikers Island and change the name to Ellis Island 2. Check them for diseases. Make sure they're not terrorists. Make sure they're not drug dealers. Make sure the, the kids are vaccinated and are safe to go to public schools with the American kids. New York billionaire John Katsimatidis suggested to Adams that Rikers Island be rebranded. It's currently more or less a giant prison, but Katsimatidis says it could become part of the immigration system. We need to keep in mind that a lot of these people are willing and able to have work. Um, and they're looking for livelihood. They're not looking to stay at the Roosevelt Hotel for the rest of their lives. Immigration attorney Elaine Wood says these people can contribute to the economy. She says law firms such as her own are helping them for free. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, rescuers are working to help an American explorer who's trapped in the third deepest cave in Turkey. More school districts in California are considering parental notification of children's gender identification. We bring you the latest on legal action that's impacting school board policies in the state. The CEO of Ryanair pied in the face by climate protesters. We have his reaction. And the Biden administration plans to scrap oil and gas leases in Alaska. What could this do to gas prices and the prospects for energy independence? We have analysis after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The U.S. East Coast is watching closely as Hurricane Lee intensifies to Category 2 in the Atlantic Ocean. It could reach near Category 5 strength in the Eastern Caribbean. Former President Trump's lawyers say they may try to move Trump's Georgia elections case to federal court. That could help Trump get the charges dropped. Two manhunts on the East Coast. Convicted murderer Daniela Cavalcante is still on the loose in Pennsylvania. And homicide suspect Christopher Haynes escaped a hospital in Washington, D.C. Over in Turkey, rescuers are working to help an American explorer who is trapped in the third deepest cave in the country. More than 150 rescuers are racing to reach him. Mark Dickey was part of a research team exploring the Morka sinkhole in southern Turkey. Earlier this week, he developed gastrointestinal bleeding some 3,600 feet deep in the cave. Dickey is now stable, but he is still deep within the cave. The Turkish Caving Federation says it will take days to get him out on a stretcher because of the narrow winding passages. For reference, it would take an experienced caver a full 15 hours to reach the surface in ideal conditions. 
Parents no longer need to be notified if their children are switching pronouns in one Southern California school district. But at the same time, other school boards are considering the policy. NTD's Eileen Eng has more. San Bernardino County Superior Court Judge Thomas S. Garza ordered Chino Valley Unified School District to stop its policy to notify parents if their child changes their pronouns or use a bathroom of a gender other than the one listed on their official paperwork. Sonia Shaw, president of the Chino Valley Unified Board of Education, said she was disappointed by the ruling but hopes the case will bring attention to the issue. The judge admitted to not reading all the documents, which is kind of disappointing because we know that the documents... Um, usually don't take more than 20 to 30 minutes to read through. So unfortunately, he didn't even absorb any of the information prior to making the judgment. This comes after California Attorney General Rob Bonta sued the school district last week. In a statement, Bonta said, Today's decision by the San Bernardino Superior Court rightfully upholds the state rights of our LGBTQ plus students and protects kids from harm by immediately halting the board's forced outing policy. Garza's order halts the district's policy while Bonta's lawsuit continues. During a court hearing Wednesday, Garza raised questions about why the policy came up in the first place and how it protected students. She explains to California insider CMAC Karami how she came up with the policy. These privacy laws and guidelines were put in place to keep privacy of the student from third parties and the government, never the parents. But now you have third party and government using those privacy laws and guidelines against the parents. Bonta argues the policy will forcibly out transgender students in violation of their privacy rights and threaten their well-being. Chino Valley contends the policy seeks to involve parents so they can provide support their children need. Full details of the court order were not immediately available. The next court hearing on the issue is scheduled for October 13th. Meanwhile, two other districts are also considering the parental notification policy. On Wednesday, Northern California's Rockland Unified School District passed their version of the policy in a four-to-one vote. A total of five school boards have now adopted a notification policy. Orange Unified School District will consider the policy on Thursday. Climate protesters pied a CEO in the face as he set up for an event earlier today. It happened to Ryanair CEO Michael O'Leary outside the European Commission in Brussels, Belgium. The CEO was about to deliver a petition calling for flyovers to be protected during air traffic control strikes when climate protesters hit him with cream pies. The protesters could be heard on the video yelling about pollution from planes. Undeterred, O'Leary carried on talking to the media, saying, quote, I love cream cakes. They're my favorite. After his remarks, he licked some of the treat off his hands and added, it's delicious cake. To drill or not to drill, that's the question Alaska is facing after new proposals from the Biden administration could stop leases approved under Trump. The plan would impact more than 40 percent of the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. We hear from a senior fellow in energy and environment at the Centennial Institute for more. Kelly Sloan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Kelly, President Biden is proposing a ban, which would ban drilling on the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. Now, an expert at Gas Buddy says this move isn't going to impact gas prices, so we're not going to be feeling the pinch to begin. What's your take on his analysis, and how does this affect America's energy independence? Well, he may be right in the short term. The, uh, the leases in question are being held by a trust right now because... Uh, 
which brings up another issue with oil and gas drilling in the United States. A lot of banks weren't offering funding or offering any any kind of uh, loan guarantees to oil companies to you know to purchase the leases and start developing them. So. In the short term, it's not going to make that much difference. However, the uh, uh, the symbolism of the ban and what it, what it really signals for the future, and uh, what it signals in terms of what the Biden administration's approach to energy independence is, uh, that's a, that's far more troubling. And I think that's going to have uh, greater long-term consequences. Now, Alaska's Republican Senator Dan Sullivan is saying that the Biden administration's action are damaging the local economy there, including indigenous jobs who are actually benefited by that. What is your take on all of this? It seems this is impacting potentially future investments. Well, absolutely. And that's the problem with a lot of these uh, decisions made by, you know, in Washington, D.C., that impact local communities, you know, on federal land, not just in Alaska, also here in Colorado, you know, the western our western part of our state uh, is mostly federal land. We used to do a lot of uh, natural gas drilling out there and a lot, a lot of mining. And uh, there, you know, there's currently a, a BLM proposed BLM rule that would, you know, bring in conservation leases that would allow a lot of these same groups, uh, outside groups and environmental groups, to buy up all this land and then take it out of production, which of course is going to hurt not only the local communities, which depend on. Uh, economic development of public land, but uh, you know, also the nation as a whole, because these are national resources. And now, Alaska does have polar bears and other wildlife. How much of an impact would these drilling sites have on the wildlife? Oh, very little. I don't think that uh, we should really be making national energy policy on whether it inconveniences a couple uh, Alaskan caribou or not. Um, however, that aside, you know that. Uh, They've shown that there hasn't been a great impact on wildlife. The very, very small amount of land that's actually being uh, developed. I mean, it's postage stamp compared to the, you know the vast amount of land, not just in Alaska, but even just in in Anwar in the area. Certainly, we've seen not only in Alaska but elsewhere in the United States that drilling, mining, other development, even renewable development, uh, can be done in a way that's responsible and that uh, takes into account the. Uh, convenience of uh, the wandering caribou and birds. And Kelly, the Biden administration says its climate priorities are behind a lot of these moves. Now, you've actually spoken before how a lot of that is actually taken advantage of by China. So could you speak more to that, especially in terms of America's energy independence? Sure. Well, any time that we seed our, uh, you know, the development of our uh, uh, energy infrastructure that we, you know, give up developing our own, what we have in our own backyard, our own resources, we have to get that energy from somewhere. A lot of the environmental groups would like to have you believe that, A, that we can switch over to solar and wind, and that we're just using stuff that's out here. Well, the the simple, the, the cruel fact is, first of all, we can't switch overnight. The solar and wind combined only make up, can contribute uh, physically only about 20, 25% of the, the total grid uh, capacity mostly because of reasons of storage, also reasons of transmission. But aside from that, the infrastructure that solar and wind require need uh, raw materials that come from the ground, you know, uh, rare earth materials, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, the less that we develop the natural resources that we have, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's uranium for nuclear, uh, even whether it's, you know, mining rare earth minerals for uh, some of these uh, uh, renewable efforts, the less we do that here, somebody else is going to have to make up the uh, 
you know, make, make up that deficit. And unfortunately, we've historically seen it's often countries that don't have our best interests at heart. You know, we were essentially held hostage by OPEC in the 1970s. Um, unfortunately, we do get a fair bit of oil and natural gas from Canada if we decide not to produce our own, and Canada is still our friend. But the fact is, energy independence is, is not just a, a simple economic matter. Uh, it's, it's really a strategic, it's really a survival matter. It's all, every human activity requires energy. And why would we want to be dependent on that on somebody else when we can produce it ourselves? It just simply doesn't make any sense. Kelly Sloan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up in the NFL, the Vegas oddsmakers release their Super Bowl favorites. Will we see a repeat champion in Kansas City? And the legends of history revived. Some contestants at NTD's 10th classical Chinese dance competition tell stories of the distant past through this traditional art form. Stay tuned for more when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at who the odds makers have winning the Super Bowl. That's right, Tiff. The Vegas odds makers have made the Kansas City Chiefs their favorite to repeat as champions. Caesar Sportsbooks has Patrick Mahomes and company at 6-1 to odds to lift the Lombardi Trophy for what would be the third time in five seasons. Now right behind them are the Philadelphia Eagles, who were last year's runner-ups. They're followed by the San Francisco 49ers, and then last year's preseason favorites, the Buffalo Bills. Right behind them are the Cincinnati Bengals at 10 to 1 odds. Meanwhile, the New York Jets, who were all the way down the list last year at 200 to 1 odds, are up to 16 to 1 now that they have four-time MVP Aaron Rodgers under center. Yet the long-suffering franchise hasn't even made the playoffs since 2010. And in women's college hoops, reigning national champion LSU rewarded head coach Kim Mulkey with a new record-breaking 10-year $32 million deal that's the richest total contract in the sport. The 61-year-old led the Lady Tigers to a title in just her second season in Baton Rouge, following 21 years at Baylor, where she won three more national championships. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just six baseball games are on, but that includes one with the suddenly hot New York Yankees, who've won five straight and eight of their last nine to move within six and a half games of the wild card spot. They host the Detroit Tigers. And at the U.S. Open tonight, a pair of women's semifinal matches, each featuring an American participant. First, 19-year-old Coco Goff faces Carolina Muchova of the Czech Republic, followed by 17-seeded Madison Keys facing Arena Sabalenka of Belarus. And finally, the NFL season kicks off tonight with the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs hosting the Detroit Lions on NBC's Thursday Night Football. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. And stunning solo dance performances. We just wrapped up day one of NTD's classical Chinese dance competition. Here are the highlights from the Purchase College Performing Arts Center in Purchase, New York.
There's something incredible about solo dance performances. You catch nuances you'd miss in a group show. And classical Chinese dance can open a door to another world. Contestants at the NTD dance competition select stories from Chinese history and turn them into dance. Well, I'm dancing a character called Zhang Sanfeng. He is the founder of Taiji Boxing. He spent around maybe 30 years just to find a master. And then after he found a master, he spent another 30 years just cultivating by himself until eventually he obtained the Dao. Contestants perform two types of pieces for judges. On top of the storytelling pieces, like Patrick Fung's, they also perform pieces that demonstrate their technical abilities. And there's something deeper to classical Chinese dance. I would say this art form is my way of life, mm -hmm. right? Because through it, I've improved so much as a person. I've, it's helped me understand more from my heritage because growing up in the West, I wasn't too connected to it. But uh, after learning dance, I felt like I became a lot closer to um, this, uh, to, I, felt, I felt more connected to this culture, you know? And I never realized how truly magnificent it was until after I studied dance. Patrick Fung will perform his piece about the founder of Tai Chi tomorrow in the adult preliminaries. He feels like this dance competition will help him improve his dance skills significantly. I felt like through, just through this competition, these few weeks of preparing for it, I improved so much in myself because I'm constantly um, looking at myself in the mirror, recording myself, having the teacher watch me individually so I find out more about my strengths, my weaknesses, and just how to improve uh, myself in general. Stay tuned for more on the 10th NTD International Classical Chinese Dance Competition. We'll be live streaming both the semifinals and finals on Saturday and Sunday on our website at ntd.com, as well as on our social media platforms like YouTube. That's all for now. I'm Chris Beers, reporting from the Performing Arts Center at Purchase College in Purchase, New York. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.